You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Uh, it's probably no surprise to you that the uh, greatest selling book of all time is, uh, of course, the Bible. Uh, you've got 400 of them in your house. It's a very popular book, the Bible. The second greatest selling book of all time, though, maybe less of you have heard of, uh, but uh, it's still the second greatest selling book of all time. It's this one right here. It's The Pilgrim's Progress. You guys heard of that before? Pilgrim's Progress? Yes. Uh, originally uh, printed in 1678 by a guy named John Bunyan in England. It has been translated now into over 200 languages. It has never gone out of print. It's probably one of my top five favorite books of all time, uh, BT dubs, so please uh, be sure to check this book out. It's amazing. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress uh, is a, if you haven't heard of it before, it's essentially, it's an allegory. It's a really long allegory telling the tale of a pilgrim, a traveler named Christian. And this guy Christian lives in a city at the beginning uh, of the book, a city called Destruction, which is an unfortunate city name. And he finds himself in the city of Destruction with this great burden strapped to his back. So think like massive, heavy, weighty, backpack-like things strapped to his shoulders and it can't come off. No matter what he does, no matter how he picks at the string, it won't come off until one day he meets a man named Evangelist. See what's happening? And an Evangelist meets Christian and he tells him the way in order to get the burden removed from his back and to flee the wrath that's coming on this city called destruction. He says, head this way toward a gate. You enter through the gate and you get on this narrow path and you head as fast as you can toward the celestial city, he calls it. And so Christian says, yes, I want that. And he takes off running and he heads to the gate through the gate, on the path. And at some point, uh, early on in the story, he, as he's through the gate, he comes to this hill that he begins to climb up. And at the top of this hill, there is a cross there. It's the first time the cross is introduced in the book. He comes up to the cross, and as he comes to the foot of the cross, he notices something. He notices his, his straps are loosening. Like the thing that he tried his whole life to get off, he, he couldn't get off, but all of a sudden they're coming unraveled around him and that great burden that was on his back falls off of his shoulders onto the ground, rolls down the hill and rolls right into the open mouth of an empty tomb. The writer says, never to be seen from again. Amen. And he's standing there for the first time, like, like light and, 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 and burdenless. And he's just overwhelmed in this moment. And, and Bunyan writes that he breaks into song, into singing, right as he realizes that that burden's gone forever. And, and here's the beginning part of his song. This is what he sings. He says, thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. What a place is this, must here be the beginning of my bliss? I love this book. And I love 
this line that must here be the beginning of my bliss because I find it to be so poignant for what the Christian life feels like. You know, it's interesting. I said this, this, story, this part of the story comes at the, really at the beginning of this big book right here. You're not even 50 pages in before Christian's burden gets removed and he really begins the meaningful part of his journey. There's 150 more pages that you go through as you're reading The Pilgrim's Progress before his story ends at the celestial kingdom. And so as he's journeying, I mean, he's, he's fighting dragons and he's running from giants and he's escaping prison and he's climbing up mountains and, and scaling walls. I mean, that's, that's what's happening for 150 extra pages. And right at the beginning is the moment where he meets Jesus and the burden rolls off his back. And I think that's important for us to see here that, that for Bunyan, as he's sort of processing what the Christian life is like, he's putting the, the encounter with Jesus, the salvation moment, a conversion, he's putting that at the beginning of the story, not at the end of it. Now, I bring this up because in almost 18 years of, of now walking with Jesus, I believe that one of the biggest I don't know, misconceptions that we have within the church, especially uh, that we tend to have in sort of the religious South, uh, is that somehow getting saved is sort of the, the punchline end game of the gospel, right? Like that's, like for, for many of us, our, our thinking, subconscious or otherwise, is that the end of my story is I got saved. But that's not at all how the Bible wants to frame this for us. That's not at all how the Bible talks about it. See, for the Christian, our conversion is not the end of our journey. In many ways, it's, it's absolutely the opposite of that. It is the beginning of our journey. And, and we're so quick to put it at the end, like that's, that's the period on the end of the sentence of our lives with God. And now I just kind of wait around till he beams me up to heaven. But it's not that. That's not what it feels like to be a Christian. And that's certainly not how the Bible is gonna frame it. And here in Philippians chapter three, using his own story, <clears throat> our man Paul, in his own words, is going to dispel this myth for us that salvation is the end of our journey and not the beginning. And he's gonna, he's gonna show us what the real punchline of Christianity is and why it's worth exerting every energy we have to attain it. Okay, that's what, that's what we're getting into right now. So uh, if you have your Bible, get it out. Philippians chapter three, I'm gonna pick up in verse 12 and we're gonna work uh, backward and forward from there. So uh, let's look at it together. Verse 12, and it says this. So we're kind of jumping into mid-thought for Paul, okay? Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So let's pause there. 
because immediately a question comes up, right? Immediately, especially because we're jumping kind of mid-thought into Paul's argument here, a question comes up. And the question is, what is the this that he hasn't obtained? So let's figure that out before we go any further. What's the, what is the this? He starts by saying, not that I have already obtained this, Right? Later he goes on to say, I press on to make it my own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So what is the this, what is the it that he's talking about that he's looking at and saying, I've not uh, obtained it. I don't have that yet. I'm pressing on for the this. What is the this? We have to figure that out. And we also have to be careful, right? Because a, a, a sloppy or a lazy reading of this passage could definitely come off like what he's saying is what I lack is salvation. Like what I lack is, is righteousness. I'm not his yet. And so I press on and do things so that I could secure for myself salvation. But is that what he's saying? Is that, is that, what, the, is that what the text is getting at here? Well, it, it can't be, right? It can't be well, for a couple of reasons. Uh, it just it, within the first verse here, uh, he gives us a clue. He says, not that I have already obtained this or already become perfect, but I press on to make it my own because why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So he just said, the reason I'm trying to obtain this is because I've been obtained by Christ. Right? Or you don't even have to look at that. We can go back to the text last week that Rodney preached for us, which, by the way, one of my favorite sermons from you, brother. So great. Thank you for that. Uh, last week, we were in sort of the 8 through 11 space. What does he say there? How does he talk about the righteousness that he has? What's the language that he puts around it? Look at verse 9. Uh, he says, to be found in him. He's thinking about what, what it means to be in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, Right? So not, I, I don't have a righteousness that comes from me hustling and doing a lot of stuff. So not a righteousness from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So, so this is me just wanting to be extra careful that your ears this morning aren't hearing the, the laboring, the pressing on that I haven't obtained is somehow him saying, I need to work hard so I can get saved. Okay, that is not what he's saying. He's saying, Jesus Christ owns me. He has given me his righteousness. I'm not who I was anymore. My efforts count for nothing. Jesus on my behalf count for everything. I'm his. Okay, so that's not what he's saying. He's not, he's not saying he's earning his righteousness. So then what is he talking about? Because he definitely wants us to know whatever it is, he doesn't have it. So let's look again at the context. Let's go back uh, just a little bit before verse 12. Hang with me. We're, we're hopping around just a bit. We're going to verse 10 and 11 now. So this is right before he gets to not that I uh, have obtained this. So this is right before that he says this, that I may know him and the, and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this. Do, do you see it now? Are you, are you starting to see what he's saying? What is Paul saying he hasn't obtained? What is he, what is he straining toward? Verse 10 tells us. 
knowing Christ. Like, and, and a, a type of knowing Christ that's deep and rich and, and unhindered by my fleshy self, right? Which is why he says that, that I may fellowship in his sufferings, being conformed to his death. I want my that old man inside of me that loves sin and hates God, I want that guy dead. I want him gone so I can have more access to Jesus. And to emphasize that, he, he looks sort of down the corridor of time in verse 11, all the way down to that great promise that awaits him in eternity of being raised to be with Christ forever. He starts talking about resurrection. Like he, he's imagining what it must feel like to know Jesus without any encumbrance where he can fully know him. And he goes, I want resurrection. I want a new body with new capacities to enjoy Jesus unhindered by my sin. And he says all that and he says, and I don't have that. I don't have that yet, and, and so I haven't obtained it, but I press on toward that. That is my prize. He actually calls it, when he thinks about it, he thinks, that's like a prize for me. That's what he says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Paul's saying that the great prize for me, the thing that I haven't obtained, but I want to, is being in a place where I can know Jesus without any hindrance. Do you see that? That, that's what's happening in this moment. Not that I've already obtained it. I'm his, but I want him totally. I want the whole thing and I want unrestricted access to him. And so I, what I'm saying is that's the prize that I have my sights set on and I'm chasing that. This passage, therefore, is not about how one becomes a pilgrim, right? It's about how a pilgrim progresses in enjoying Jesus. That's what this passage is about. You see that? And so how do pilgrims progress in, in knowing God? How do you do that? I mean, you, you want this, right? We want, we want to imagine, imagine a life where, where your sins and vices don't have you by the throat, right? Where, where you're not constantly just having to crush all that to see the beauty of Jesus, where you can just run to him like a child. Like imagine a, a, a life where joy comes easy for you or, or like the fruit of the spirit is just ripe on you, where it's, where it's easy to be patient and long-suffering and loving and gentle, where you have Christ. I mean, that's what we want, right? If you have the spirit of God in you right now, you're saying, yes, that is what I want. That would be so amazing. And that's what Paul's saying he wants too. And so how do we grab onto this prize, as Paul calls it? That's what he's dealing with here. How do we make that our own? And I find the answer to be really surprising. Paul says, by sweating. I don't like that answer any more than you do. It just seems to be what the text says. But follow, just follow the verbs with me for a second to get a sense of what Paul means. Here's just some of the language he's saying. I press on. I lay hold. I'm reaching forward. I press on toward the goal of the prize. Do, do you feel that? This is a doer's passage. This is a doing passage. 
These words are, are meant to evoke in us images of like a foot race or like the Olympic games. Paul loves borrowing sports language to make his point about what chasing Jesus should feel like for us. And he's doing that here. He's saying it will feel like these types of things. It will not feel like floating up to heaven, right? Has anybody ever felt like that if you got saved? It's so easy after you get saved, isn't it? It's so easy. I don't even know why I'm preaching this. Paul's crazy. It's no, right? Does it ever feel like, like it will not feel like slipping comfortably into the sleeping bag of holiness, you know, a little snuggy, Netflix. No, it's not, it doesn't feel like that, right? No, what Paul's saying is you wanna know what the Christian life of, of pursuing Jesus feels like? It will feel like grit and dirt under your nails and sweat and tears and calloused knees and late nights of praying and searching the scriptures and wrestling with God and enduring persecution and running and striving toward the prize. Now come to Jesus, right? That's, that's what the language is meant to evoke in us. You will not coast, listen, you will not coast into a rich relationship with Jesus any more than someone on a bicycle can coast up a mountainside. That's just not how it works. You will not coast there. Saved people still break a sweat. We do. Now hold on, right? Now, now I feel a little uncomfortable. Jimmy, are you saying that we're saved by grace, it's God's doing, but we're somehow sanctified, made to look like Jesus by our works? Because it seems, that's what I just heard. We sweat and we work. And so am I saved by my works? Well, no, no, that's definitely not what I'm saying. And that's not what Paul's saying either. Paul has told us over and over again in this book that it is God who brings about the change in us, right? Not us. Chapter one, verse six, he who began a good work in you will see it to completion in Christ Jesus. He'll bring about the change. He'll bring you to the finish line. Uh, 12, uh, 2, 12 through 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for what? It is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So you're working, but God is actually doing the labor within you so that it's all grace. It's all him. This is still the credit that God is saying he takes. It's his spirit doing it. But, but experientially, right? It will not feel that way for us. It does not feel that way for us. We don't coast into holiness. It's never felt like that for any saint on planet earth. Our felt experience will be one of laboring and straining toward the prize. And we just need to know this about what we're getting into as we get into Christ. We're carried along by the spirit as it happens but it feels like sweat. And that's actually really helpful for us to know. It's really helpful for us to know because it can be really discouraging when, it, when you wake up and it's like, gosh, it feels like work to wake up at six and pray before my kids get up. I thought the spirit's supposed to like levitate me out and like <laughs> clap my hands together and make me talk. Like, but it's never like that, 
right? It's never like that. It will feel like I hate my alarm clock and Lord, give me grace. Oh my gosh. It's going to feel like that. But that's okay because that's what Paul says it should feel like. And know that in your doing, it is God doing it through you. So take comfort in that, Christian. Or maybe another way that that, uh, could help inspire us moving forward uh, in the sort of sweat of it all is to think about it in terms uh, of cultivating a relationship. That's really what we're talking about here, right? We're already his, he's already ours. We're just talking about a depth now. We're talking about going deeper with him. And have you ever been in a relationship that didn't require labor to be great? If you are in a relationship where it required no labor and you think it's great, it's probably not. They just owe you money or something, right? And they're being nice to you, right? But every good, meaningful relationship takes work. It takes work. It's just how it is. Great relationships take work. Knowing someone takes work and work is hard, just like a race is hard. And if this is like a race that we're in, then, then Paul is, is gonna assume the position for these next verses for us of a coach. This is our race of getting to know Jesus more till we come to that finish line, our resurrection. And, and so we're gonna let Paul be our coach here for the next verses, okay? We following? Uh, and like a good coach, Paul's gonna help us win the prize here. So in these next verses, he's gonna provide three helps for us as we press on toward the goal. He's gonna tell us three things to remember our identity, to run in good community, and to imagine our destiny. That's the help that Paul's providing for us, to, to remember our identity, to run in good community, and to imagine our destiny. First, let's look at remembering our identity. Verse 15, you can look at it with me. It says this, let those who are mature think this way. And if, any, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Okay, so, so Paul is turning now to the Philippians and, and, and he's saying that this way of thinking that I just described, this is right. And this is how you should think. You should think like this. But he uses a very interesting word here to describe the Philippians. I wonder if you saw it. He says, let those who are mature think this way. Now, that maybe doesn't immediately strike us. It gets a little lost in the English. But here's what's so interesting. That word mature in the Greek is this word teleo or teleos. And it appears... Uh, that same word appears just a few verses earlier in verse 12 when he says, not that I have already obtained this or have already become perfect. So you could render this translation, uh, not that I have already become perfect, and verse 15, let those who are perfect think this way. Now what the heck does that mean? Well, it gets weirder than that. Look at verse 16. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, wait a minute, right? Because again, go back to verse 12. Paul just said, I haven't obtained this. The the resurrection, it's out there, uh, unattained by me. I have not obtained this. And then verse 16 says, we have attained. So verse 12, 
I haven't obtained. Verse 16, we have attained. Uh, verse 12, I'm not perfect. Verse 15, you are perfect. What, I, again, what is happening, right? What is Paul saying? Well, he's telling them something actually really profound. He's telling them that in a very real sense, they already have what they're striving for. They already have what they're striving for. They, they already are what they want to become. And if you think about it, we know this, right? I mean, some of the most famous verses in our Bible should come to our mind right now. Second Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation, right? The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come up. That you're new in Christ. You're not who you were. We think about being transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, that we're not, we're not in the same kingdom anymore. We're in a different place that the Bible says we're hidden with Christ in God, that we're holy. The Bible constantly is calling Christians saints, holy ones, set apart ones. So, so the Bible is very comfortable, comfortable calling us holy, righteous, pure, clean, that we've been washed by the Spirit. He's gonna, they're going to use all, all that language, and it's all true in a sense. In what sense? Well, positionally, it's true. You couldn't be worshiping Jesus this morning if it were not true of you that you were a saint, that you were holy. He would not hear your worship. God is too holy. So Jesus covers you by his blood, makes you clean so you can come into the presence of the king of glory and make much of him. So we are positionally in the eyes of God, right? We're pure. It's why I can say with confidence, if I die today, I will be with Jesus forever. Not because of what I did, but because he's made me righteous. I am righteous. I'm his. I'm holy. Positionally, but practically, it's a different story, isn't it? Practically, I'm a knucklehead, right? And, and I'm selfish and I'm prideful and I'm gossipy and all of these things that I hate uh, uh, about my sort of old disposition. We have a long ways to go before uh, we are fully living as God has made us to be. It's Meghan Markle, right? Uh, you know, sweet girl from, from uh, the streets of LA. She just got married to Prince Harry one month ago. And now she is literally a princess. She's the Duchess of Sussex. Her, her grandmother-in-law is the Queen of England. She lived in LA, now her grandma's the queen. This is, this is the reality for somebody out there. She is a princess, positionally. But that girl ain't no princess right? Like, I mean, like every news story is about, oh my gosh, she broke this norm and it's crazy. She didn't cross her legs when she sat. She's not a princess, right? She has a long way to go before she can figure out what princess-ishness is, right? And in fact, I, I Googled this yesterday. They just enrolled her in six months of pris, uh, princess lessons. This is a thing that she is in now. So she'll come out on the other side with her pinky up and all those things that make one royal. Uh, so, so positionally, yes, she's a princess, but practically she's growing into that. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, Jesus has made you perfect. Now it's time to live like it. 
Or to say it another way, our identity changes our activity. This is a help for us. This is so empowering for us because we stumble all the time, don't we? I mean, it's just so hard to live like that. I mean, regularly, and you, you know this, maybe even this week, for maybe you were just dragging your feet coming here because you just feel so weighed down with guilt. You think about what your last week looked like, what your last night looked like. You think about the things you said to that person that you say you love. You think about those things, those activities you did, those people you rolled with, and, and you're just going, how could, I'm the worst. This is a comfort and an energizer for the stumbling saint to know, but that's not who you are. He's looking at them. He's saying, that's not who you are. You are perfect in Christ. So live like that. Learn to lean into who God has made you to be. We strive for perfection because we're already perfect in Christ. We, we strive toward our resurrection because we're already raised to newness of life in Christ. You have a new identity, so become like what you are. That's the first help that Paul gives us. The second is this. In your new identity, run with others in good community. In your new identity, run with good community. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So Paul now looks at the Philippians and says, you wanna win the prize? Then you surround yourselves in good community. I want you to keep your eyes on me and anyone else like me who has made knowing Jesus their life's mission. He's, he's telling us, you need to get with people who have imitatable lives. This is a help for us as we're pursuing the prize of knowing God. We get with people who have imitatable lives. There, there is a power in there in, in the, the people we admire, the people we roll with, uh, the, the people we keep company with who are influencers around us. There's a power that they have, and you know this, right? Because hopefully you've had these experiences. There's a power that they have to awaken love for God in you that you didn't know you had, an appetite for him. You see things modeled that you haven't been leaning into, you haven't been acting as, and, and you go, I, I want that, and I, and I want to start imitating that. That's, that's normal for us when we hang out with folks who love Jesus seriously. But of course, the opposite's true too. The opposite is true. There is a power others have to destroy our love for God and, and distract us from pursuing the prize. That's just as, as common, if not more, than the former. And Paul knows this, so he warns them in verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. In other words, there are those who have no gaze upward at Christ. They're only focused on the now. They are people who are living for their appetites, their belly, their desires, and they will be destroyed. And I can't even write about this, Paul says, without weeping. It grieves him. Don't 
follow after them. It, it, it's, he's not saying we don't have friends who don't know Jesus. He's not saying you, all your coworkers have to be saved before you can go to work. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the folks that you set your eyes on and seek to emulate should not be people whose God is their appetite, who are focused on the here and now. You surround yourselves with saints who are saying, I want the same prize you do. You surround yourself with those types of people. I, and you know, I've, I have so many of these people in my life that I'm so grateful for. I think about a guy named Paul Helbig. Um, Paul uh, is a mentor of mine who I started hanging out with in my 20s uh, down in Katy when me and Kelly were living down there. And we started to make it a habit to do lunch with him and his wife at their house uh, almost every week. And I got to watch him chase the prize. I got to watch him at his house disciple his six kids. He has six kids. That should make anyone a saint. And, and, and I got to watch him interact with them. I got to watch him love his wife well. He was a pastor, so I got to watch him preach the word faithfully. I got to watch him share the gospel with people. Six years ago, uh, Paul was diagnosed with MS. And I have... Um, I've had the privilege of watching this man of God suffer well for six years. And it has not been an easy go for him. He's losing his motor functions. He's losing his ability to walk. He can't climb stairs. He's having problems keeping thoughts in line. It's a difficult go for this man. And he is loving Jesus through it all. In fact, I texted him yesterday just to get permission to, to share a bit of his story with you guys. And, and he wrote me back and this was his text just to give you a sense of who this guy is even in, in, in the state he's in right now. He wrote back, absolutely, that's fine. I was just thinking through the following today. Six years into this MS thing and I'm convinced of, still of a few things. Jesus is Lord of Lords. Crystal is an astounding wife. I'm covered by a host of genuine, kind, loving friends and family. And Psalm 115.3 is true. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. That's a person worth, worth following. That's a person worth following. Run in community that makes you want more of Jesus. So how do we win the prize? By remembering our identity by running in good community. And the last thing Paul tells us is this, by imagining our destiny. Look at verse 20 with me. But, so he's contrasting the, the folks who, who uh, are, are focused on the here and now, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, why does he put this here at the end? I think what he's doing is this, Paul wants, uh, Paul knows that the more beautiful our destination is, the more eagerly we'll fight to reach it. I think he gets that. The more, the more beautiful and lovely and desirable our destination is, the more we are willing to sweat to get there. 
That's what he's up to. Um, the, <laughs> Miley Cyrus, uh, I bet you didn't see that segue coming. Uh, Miley Cyrus, um, about eight years ago, before she was trying to decide, you know, you know, which style and camp and theology she wanted to lean into, she, uh, she um, came out with a song that was sort of like a country Christian-y song. Uh, you might have remember, it's called The Climb. Yeah? No? Any tweens in here? Okay. Uh, and this is the, the chorus of that song, The Climb. <clears throat> There's always gonna be another mountain. I'm always gonna wanna make it move. There's always gonna be an uphill battle. Sometimes I'm gonna have to lose. It ain't about how fast I get there. It ain't about what's waiting on the other side. It's the climb. No! No, it is, it is not just about the climb. It absolutely is about what's waiting on the other side. When was the last time you heard of a dude climbing a mountain, getting to the top, covering his eyes and going, boring, I'm going back down. That doesn't happen. You don't climb Everest not to look around at the top, right? You don't do that. That's no fun. You climb to see what's at the top. You climb for the summit. You climb because it's lovelier there than here. And what Paul is trying to do is show us the mountaintop. That's why he's putting this statement at the end. One day we will be with the Savior forever. That's what he's saying. Imagine that day. Imagine that in a glorified, resurrected body that has infinite capacity to enjoy Jesus eternally. That's coming for everyone for whom he has saved in this room. That is coming for us. We don't climb for the climb. We climb for more of him. Amen? That's why we climb. Uh, do you know... I want to give you a sense of what this pressing forward toward the goal of the upward uh, call of God in Christ is, what it feels like. This is what it should feel like. I want to, I want to give you an analogy. Um, imagine for a moment you live at the foot of a mountain. Okay, just imagine this picture. You live at the foot of a mountain and one day a man comes down from the top of the mountain with a bouquet in his hand of the brightest largest, most fragrant flowers you have ever seen. And he walks up to you and he puts them in your hand and he tells you to breathe in. And you do. And it's intoxicating. And, and you think to yourself as you're smelling these flowers, I don't know that I've ever smelled flowers until today. This, this is something utterly new and, and lovely and and desirable, and then he looks at you and leans in and says, if you like this, there's a whole garden of these at the top of this mountain. And it's yours for the taking. And, and he, he tells you the road is steep. He says it's not an easy hike, but he promises you two things. That as you make the climb, number one, each step that you take, you will find 
more and more lovely flowers on the path. As you go up, it only gets more beautiful. And number two, that he's going with you to make sure you make it to the top. And he grabs your hand and takes you off running to the top of this mountain. That's what pressing on toward the goal feels like. The man from the mountain is the spirit of God. And he comes and he brings you Jesus. And you take him and he's intoxicating. You think, I've, I've, never, I've never known a freedom like this. The burden is gone from my back. And, and the, the garden at the top, that's for our forever future with Jesus in a new heavens and a new earth with unrestrained, unlimited access to him forever. And the mountain there that you're standing by, the mountain is this life in Christ. And we climb it and it's difficult, but we climb it joyfully every step of the way as we go up experiencing more and more of our savior, getting more and more of the fragrance of the flower around us. And we're being carried along by God's spirit as, he, as we do it because he's bringing us the whole way to the top. Now, who wouldn't want that? Welcome to the Christian life. That's what it is. That is what it feels like for pilgrims to progress to the garden. And yes, it's a journey. And yes, it's gonna feel hard at times. And yes, you're gonna stumble. We all do. But the garden at the top is worth it. Jesus is worthy of the climb and Jesus never disappoints those who press on toward him. Let's pray. Father God, We understand now that the journey toward you is really just beginning. And we thank you that the garden is as good as you say it is. And we have not lived like it is. And in our, in our thought life, in our actions, in our words, so often, God, we, we say, it's not worth the climb to get to know you. And we fall asleep at the mountain base. God, I pray for your kindness this morning to wake us up by your spirit to see all the flowers on our way up to the garden, to see Jesus as a supreme treasure, not just the, the get out of hell free card. We want more of you. And maybe for some of us, we're, we're praying that in faith right now because we don't even know the delight that you are to us. But God, I pray for mercy even in that, that you would help us even as we respond in song and worship to you, that you would awaken in us a love for Jesus 
If your heart is, is hard in here this morning and you know it, you have eyes enough to see that, don't stop with just acknowledging it. Confess that to the Lord this morning and ask him for grace. If, you, if you've heard all this and thought to yourself, I didn't know Jesus was knowable like that. I've never known him to be a satisfier. I've only known him to be the thing that keeps me out of hell. But ask him for eyes to see his beauty this morning. And, and how worthy the journey is up the mountain if only you could have more of him. That it's worth every cost. That it's worth throwing off every weight and every encumbrance. Crucifying every sin. Maybe for you that's happening for the first time, ask him to save you from your selfish, me-focused life so you can begin the mountain climb with him. Lord, we, we know we can't do anything, so we're asking you for grace to do this. Would you do this in these next few minutes, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.